Well, good morning. How are we doing this morning? Good. Glad to hear it. Hey, um, last week we had a really good week. Really enjoyed last week. If you missed it, go to our YouTube channel, check it out. We talked about this idea of John 13, this command that Jesus gives that I, I feel like changes the game completely. It, it separates Christianity from every other religion. Jesus says this, he says, as I've loved you, so you must love one another. So Jesus actually leads the way. He doesn't ask anything of us that, that he wasn't willing to do himself. In fact, did himself. And then he just lays out the blueprint. He says, if you do this, this is how people will know that you're my disciple. So that's what we talked about last week. And we talked about how, how Jesus is so much different, isn't he? than the leaders of the day, than the leaders of today, frankly. He's just different. And we're going to expand on this idea uh, today. We're going to talk through this idea. Essentially, if I had to condense it down, it's uh, compassion versus condemnation. Compassion versus condemnation. See, the nature of Jesus is compassion, not condemnation. We see throughout the Gospels, he, he sees something that isn't quite right. He's filled with compassion, and then he acts. In fact, on the cross, after he's been brutally beaten, uh, he, what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then in John three seventeen, like we talked about last week, the entire purpose of him coming was not for condemnation, but that we might be saved through him. Compassion is in his DNA. And I think one of the tools that the enemy likes to use is that he, he likes, sometimes we have that idea intellectually, right? We know that like his compassion is not uh, dependent on us, but, but then on kind of a micro level day to day, I think we think his compassion is based on our behavior. That if we're doing a really good job, if things are going right and we're just getting this whole, you know, rules abiding thing just right, that he's kind of turning his way towards us. But then if we don't, then he started to turn his back towards us. But his compassion is not contingent on us. His compassion is just in his DNA. Now, he's also very serious about sin, right? He, he, he hates sin and he wants us to be accountable for our sin, but we, we have to understand why that is, right? Jesus is not after our begrudging submissiveness. Jesus is after allowing us to find life and find life to the full. In John 7, Jesus is offering these rivers of living water that well up to life. He has not condensed it to behavior modification. He wants life transformation. That's what Jesus is after. And with that in mind, we're going to be in John chapter 8. And one thing, here's another thing. One thing you got to understand about Jesus. See, when we sin, he knows that sin always leads to the death of something. And he also knows that he leads ultimately to the life of something. Let me give you an example. So if you lie to somebody that you care about, you have started the process of killing that relationship, right? And if you, if you lie often enough and long enough, you undoubtedly will destroy and kill that relationship. But if you go and you pursue that person's heart and you sacrificially love that person, you give the relationship the best possible opportunity to flourish 
and to grow. That's why Jesus hates sin, and he knows that he leads to life. We're going to be in John chapter 8. Uh, we're going to read a story uh, that starts in verse 1 and goes through 11. And it, it may, just so you know, just kind of a side note, it may not be there in your Bible. It may be at the end of John chapter 7. It may be a footnote at the end of John chapter 7 or a footnote at the end of John chapter 8. Uh, there's some dispute about where exactly this belongs uh, in the scriptures, but in my Bible it's in John chapter 8. And we're just going to kind of read a little bit and then we're going to stop and then we're going to process and we're going to read a little bit more and we're going to see what God has for us today. We're going to start... Uh, here in verse 1. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now, let's stop for a second. One thing I, I really want to point out is that typically it was the Pharisees that people gathered around to hear from, right? They were the religious leaders of the day, but the Scripture says that all people gathered around Jesus, not the Pharisees. Now, there's a couple of reasons I was thinking about this. Why is it that people abandon the Pharisees to, to hear from Jesus? And I think one of the biggest reasons is that Jesus preaches good news that's available to all people. Right? From, literally from the beginning, uh, at his birth, the angel says to the shepherd, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that's available to who? To all people, right? And I don't think it's any coincidence that the angel says this to the shepherd, the one who's probably around the age of 18, society has probably already cast this person out to the outskirts of town, says, really, you're not fit for use for our culture. The rest of your life is going to be with the sheep and not with people. But the angel says to the shepherd, no, all people, that includes you, all people, this good news is available to all people. See, Jesus preached good news for all people, but the Pharisees were not always preaching good news for all people, were they? The best you could say for them is they were teaching be good news sometimes, right? It was the morality police. They were teaching this behavior modification instead of life transformation. They wanted to turn bad people into good people. They were okay with a begrudging submissiveness and that being kind of the end. But again, Jesus wants life transformation, not behavior modification. And don't get me wrong, Jesus is very high on our behavior, right? In fact, Jesus' morality far transcended that of the Pharisees. You, you hear him say things like, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your own heart. Jesus' morality was transcendent, but Jesus didn't stop at our behavior he wants our hearts, and he wants to give us life and life to the full. And people gravitated towards this good news that was for all people. If you go back a chapter to John chapter 7, I'd encourage you to go back and read that because it really ties in well with John chapter 8. But he says, he says he wants to give people rivers of living water that well up to life. He's not after our begrudging submissiveness. He's after life. Verse 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? 
They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. We'll stop here again for just a second. Uh, A couple quick points. First, we should not overlook how embarrassing this situation is for this woman, right? Uh, She's potentially still naked or partially naked, and she's been dragged in front of all these people. And and I think sometimes we treat compassion like if somebody deserves compassion, we give it. If they're going through pain, if they're having trauma, stuff like that, you know, we have compassion. But compassion should not be reserved just for those who deserve it. And compassion doesn't mean that we overlook sin or we, um, you know, sort of gloss over sin. It just means that we still offer compassion. And if Jesus only had compassion on those who were deserving of compassion, he'd only have compassion on himself. Right? Compassion is in his DNA, and we should follow. And the thing is, too, their primary goal here is not even to embarrass this woman for her sin anyway. They're embarrassing her for even a different reason, just as a pawn in their scheme to try and trap Jesus. They feel like because she has sinned, now any decision they make regarding her fate is justified because she sinned. And that's false. It's not the way of Jesus. The second point I want to make, and this is just really a side note, is uh, they don't actually get the law right here. right? They, They bring the woman, but the law actually says that you're supposed to bring the man and the woman to be stoned. And they didn't bring the man. Why? Was this all set up just to trap Jesus? Was it, um, did they have a different standard maybe for men and for women in that culture? Was, or maybe was one of their own involved with this woman? We have no idea. All we know for sure is that They did not want to keep the man accountable. They just wanted to keep the woman accountable here. And the third point I want to make is this is actually a really good trap, they've said. I mean, they've thought this one out. This is a great catch-22. Think about this. If, If Jesus says, no, don't stone her, then the Pharisees tell the people, they say, this man does not care about God's laws. He is no friend to you. He's no friend to God. He doesn't care about Moses at all. He doesn't care about the law or anything. But if he says, yes, stone her, now what he's done is he's actually broken Roman law. right? Because Roman law during that time said that, that the Jews were not allowed to carry out capital punishment. That it had to be Roman authorities who carried out capital punishment punishment, and this is why Jesus would later be crucified on the cross as opposed to stoned to death, and so there's no, there's no winning here, right? There's, there's no, nothing he can say, because what they'll do if he says, uh, yes, stone her, he'll say, all right, Roman officials, this man right here, he's an insurrectionist, he's trying to bring the Jewish people against you, he's trying to do a revolution, and you better watch him and you better get him. There's no win here. But of course, this is Jesus we're talking about. So, the next verse says this. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, don't you wish you knew what he wrote right here? I mean, this is the only time we see in the scriptures that Jesus is actually writing something. And he's writing it in the ground. Don't you wish you knew what he was writing um, I've heard some really good theories. I've heard that he uh, is just kind of positioned looking downward because this woman is still partially or, or fully naked and, 
I've also heard um, that he's actually writing down the sins of the Pharisees to kind of show the irony of them calling out her sin when they, in fact, have sin in their life. And, and that's a really good theory because in John 7, he actually does just point out, he says, none of you have fulfilled the law of Moses. None of you have kept it. He's already said that in these same temple courts, probably the day before or earlier that week. But the fact is, we don't know what he was writing. And I think the important thing to know is that he, the act of what he's doing, not necessarily what he's writing, but the act of writing on the ground. And um, I think it has more to do with the fact that they're not really asking him anything, are they? I mean, they're trying to trap him. There, there are people there who uh, who were wanting to hear from Jesus on their own accord. They, they were humble and open, and they just wanted Jesus to teach them. But the Pharisees weren't, weren't that group of people, right? They wanted to trap him. Uh, and so he just says, look, I'm just going to wait you out until you're done. I'll just, I'll just be here, and, and you continue to you know, ask your questions, stuff like that. And then when you're done, I'll continue to teach. And uh, it reminds me of when I was a kid, um, I used to love arguing with my dad, which in hindsight was a really bad idea because I was like a C-plus high school student. He's got a Ph.D., uh, so I was completely outmatched. But, but there'd be times where I would just keep pushing and I'd just want to prove him wrong and all that. And uh, my dad, at times, he would just stop saying anything back. And it would make me really mad. And I'd say, I keep pushing. I'd say, Dad, like, come on. What, did you, what do you have to say about what I just said? And he'd say, Dallas, I, I don't know what you want me to say. It just doesn't even merit a response from me. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And I, and I was like, and it would make me so mad. But I look back and I'm like, you know what? He's right. If I'm not really asking him anything, if I'm not really humble enough to hear what he has to say, why continue the conversation? See, anyone who genuinely seeks after Jesus, he will not ignore you. Anybody who seeks Jesus will find Jesus. But if you're not really even asking him a question, he's just waiting it out. Verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. So they keep on, and Jesus finally says, okay, fine, you're right. In fact, he actually takes a side here. He says, the law does say to stone her, so fine, stone her, but here's the condition. Let the one of you who's without sin do it first. Remember, he'd already told them in John chapter 7 that all of them have disobeyed the law of Moses. So he, he exposes their sin, but this is a key difference between what the Pharisees do with this woman and what Jesus does with the Pharisees. Jesus exposes their sin because Jesus wants to expose sin so that it creates a tension in our hearts to turn towards him. He wants to expose their sin, but he doesn't embarrass her the way they do this woman. I think he just wants to lead them to a decision in the matter. See, by the standard the Pharisees set forth, this is about to be a bloodbath isn't it? I mean, if you really think about it, I think the wheels are starting to turn for these Pharisees of, you know what? Let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. If that means we all have sin, Jesus is going to line us all up. And it's going to be a bloodbath and he's going to be the last one standing. Because we all fall short of that standard. Verse 8, again, 
he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, that's, this to me is crucial. See, the, the first grace that's offered by Jesus is to the Pharisees, not to this woman. Look what he did here. He exposed their sin, right? He said, you're all guilty. And then what does he do? He says, I'm willing to leave it alone. And he goes back and writes on the ground. He says, you're all guilty, but I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to leave it there. And I'm going to go back and write. He essentially lets them leave. He says, okay, we're done here. I'm going to write on the ground again, and you can go. This is an extraordinary grace he extends them, or mercy, I should say. Verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, it's a nice detail, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. So they decide. They, they've understood what Jesus is saying here, and they've decided, let's cut our losses and let's get out of here. The older ones first, because older people are smarter. Um, I, I remind my girls of that all the time uh, until none of them are left. Now, at this point, I'm not so sure that this woman is relieved quite yet. There's still one person left who can condemn her, who can send her to her death. Verse 10. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? By the way, woman doesn't mean, to, don't address a woman this way now, but, but during that time, this is a term of endearing, of, of madam, miss, where are they? Has no one condemned, condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. What I want you to take away here is that the only one who was qualified to throw a stone didn't. The only one who was qualified to throw a stone didn't. See, Jesus would have been fully justified to stone this woman to death, but he says, neither do I condemn you. Why? Because her debt will be paid by the blood of Jesus on the cross. He says, neither do I condemn you. Can you imagine the liberation in this moment from this woman? Can you imagine the amount of mercy that she must have felt? That the guy who made the most powerful religious leaders of the day walk away embarrassed, hanging their heads because they could not trap Jesus. And that man said, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, he says now that you're free, now that you have been given new life, don't go back to creating the death of your relationships, the death of your heart, the death of your soul, the numbness of your soul. Now that you have seen this incredible mercy, you've encountered me, leave that behind. Leave the old, dead way of life and accept these rivers of living water that Jesus is after. See, Jesus knows that healthy things grow and unhealthy things die. And the more we sin, the more we lead to the death of something. The more we pursue him and we pursue life, we will be healthy and grow. Jesus is offering her. By the way, a lot of times Jesus' commands are also invitations. This is clear here. He's inviting her into life. That's key. 
leave the old way of life behind. Accept these rivers of living water. Well, we've talked a lot about this word condemned already, and we never really did define this word. Uh, Condemned is an old building term. It means uh, not fit for use. An inspector comes into the house and looks at the house, looks at all of its flaws and everything, and, and he slaps a sign on the door and he says, this house is not fit for use. This house is condemned. That's just the nature of the business, but this is not the nature of Jesus. See, Jesus flips everything around. He says, it's not about what your house looks like. It's about who wants to make his dwelling there. And if Jesus wants to make his dwelling in you, then you are no longer condemned. Romans 8 tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he takes this sign that the inspector put on the door and he rips it away and he puts fit for use. You are fit for use. Not because of how good you are, not because of our behavior, but because Jesus wants to make his dwelling in you. And if Jesus wants to make his dwelling in you, you are fit for use. When the enemy attacks you with insecurity, I want you to be reminded you are fit for use. When you wake up in the morning, you are fit for use. When you go to work each day, you are fit for use. When you come home, you are fit for use. As a mother, as a father, you are fit for use. As a son, as a daughter, as a brother, as a sister, you are fit for use. If Jesus wants to make his dwelling in you, you are fit for use. You are fit for use. During this time of worship, I, I just encourage you that this is a great time to take next steps. I'm going to ask a couple elders to come down to the front. And if you want to talk to somebody while God's stirring in your heart, now's the time to do it. Don't wait. If God is nudging on your heart, now's the time to talk to somebody that you trust. Maybe there's been a period of time where you've, you've felt condemned. You haven't believed that compassion is actually in his DNA. It's not based on your own behavior and how you're doing. And maybe you just need to confess that today and just accept these rivers of living water that he's offering you. Or, or maybe you've had sin habits that have controlled you all this time and you, you haven't accepted his invitation ever. Now's a good day to talk to somebody you trust. We're not going to twist your arm. We're not going to force you into a decision. Somebody's just going to pray with you and talk to you about how good this Jesus is. I want to remind you today, if Jesus wants to make his dwelling in you, then you are fit for use. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. Father, we thank you that, um, that your love is not contingent on anything that we do, that you give without conditions, that you, um, that you have a DNA that has overflowing with compassion. Father, thank you that Romans 8 tells us that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, the enemy is going to tell us today that we are not fit for use. Remind us again and again and again and again that because you make your dwelling in us, that we are fit for use. We love you a whole lot. In Jesus' name, amen.